0: Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, and this is HFL number 135. And this is with, uh, man, we are really stepping outside of the, the brass world. This is with one of my favorite uh, string players. This is a uh, violinist, one of the founding members, if not the founding member of the uh, the group Time for Three. This is with Zach DePew. Zach is a terrific musician, and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview, but uh, But of course, before we get to any of the interviews, I have to tell you about the show sponsors. Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric and trim color, add custom engraving, and more. And of course, you can find out more at messinacovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Marine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at pickettblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram, and you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hama Design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are. I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal. You can find out more at EastmanWinds.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino, designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle, and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil- uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studio And now, on with the interview. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> you asked me about my fame and fortune uh, yeah. crediting Time for Three.
0: Yeah, but let, let, me, let me back up, since uh, sure. we can start fresh, this will all be spontaneous, just like it came from the ether for the first time ever, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I'll even, I'll even do a, a, a little intro. Hey, Zach, nice to see you Larry. today, man. <laughs> Larry, thanks for having
1: me, man. <laughs> yeah,
0: man, it's, it's a treat to have you on here. You are the first string player I've had uh, on this program. What an honor. Really? Well, I mean, it, it's part of community service, so it's not much of an honor, really. It's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> i just busting your chops.
1: Helping a colleague out. I
0: don't know. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited right. to have a platform to, to you know, talk, man. <laughs> there aren't many these days. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, I'm just kidding, of course. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, we've crossed paths in the recording studio, uh, in orchestra, and at the University of Indianapolis, where you are part of well remind me what the name what's the name of that quartet down there uh the indianapolis quartet yeah right the indianapolis quartet sorry that was that's such a stretch for me to remember that that kind of it's complicated complicated. (laughs) (laughs) yeah and uh you know it's nice having you around down there i mean i know the students appreciate having uh, access to such high quality players um so you know Uh, aside from those interactions that I've had really where I first came to know you was of course, through time for three. Yeah. And so the question is, is, is that kind of where you found your fame and fortune?
1: Well, well, definitely. I had a a, a mutual passion for different styles of music with a couple of friends at Curtis uh, Institute where we were in school. And back then, I mean, it's funny saying this now, but this is 20 years ago. Um, you know, that sort of experimentation was, I wouldn't say frowned upon, but nobody was really doing it. And we were still in a very different place as classical musicians. I think it was sort of the peak of we as instrumentalists need to perfect our craft as classical players and, and get a job in a great orchestra and then play as perfectly and accurately as possible. And I, I, I did that. I mean, I got the job in the Philadelphia Orchestra um, and but Time for Three grew very quickly. Um, A big breakthrough for Time for Three and I think for classical music was when Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with the Philadelphia Orchestra at the Mann Center was to be performed. 5,000 people had shown up. There was a huge thunderstorm. The power was was um, eliminated from the building by a lightning strike. And there was one emergency light and microphone that worked on the front of the stage and the philly orchestra this is back in 2003 had heard about time for three because we had gigged around philly and renan was subbing in the bass section so it was just two of us nick was at Marlboro music festival and they said hey do you guys mind going out and playing 15 minutes and then we'll have somebody else go out and play and we'll just make a program happen over this emergency mic and on, and I were like, well, sure. And we went out for 15 minutes and we did a solid 15 minutes of like just our stuff minus Nick. And um, we came off stage and they were like, the audience was really digging it. Like there was a legitimate like concert vibe going on. And manager was like, can you guys just keep going? Like everybody in the orchestra too was like, you guys just do this gig. This is your gig. <laughs> so we like, we went out and we did like another, like, I, I'd say 30 minutes. I mean, they asked us to keep playing and jamming until close to nine o'clock, which was like, we don't have to return the ticket sales at that point. <laughs> and we did just that. Renan, you know, God bless him. You know, he was right there as a soldier backing me up. I'm calling tunes, you know, and he's, and I'm sitting on a chair and he's standing next to me. Cause I had the microphone and get catching his sound and oh, fiddle little right. sound. We're playing into this one mic and, uh, it, it really made a mark, and, and also just the audience left pretty thrilled with the whole experience, and it made, it, it made a name for us, big time. I mean, things took off from there. We got opportunities to play. Well, symphony orchestras were like, well, can, can you create – I think our first gig, actually, the next year was with the Wheeling West Virginia Symphony. They called us Andre Raphael Smith. The music director at the time called us and he said i want you guys and we said yeah we have charts we'll make that happen we had no charts we had we had cool americana stuff that we had written arrangements orange blossom special um we wrote a tune called the jig and Thunder Stomp," and like it was it was just sort of a melting pot of styles um anyhow yeah, we took the gig and we wrote charts we scrambled we got some friends that were unemployed composers at curtis to create charts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we had a heck of a time and things just really like, um, we, we secured a meeting with the music director of the Philadelphia orchestra, Christoph Eschenbach, who we sat down and we we knew it was to talk to him about commissioning a a piece for us in orchestra, like a, a formal piece. And he, we had some ideas of who we wanted. We sat down and he said, I know the perfect person for this. We want to commission Jennifer Higdon to write a piece for you. And we were like, that's exactly, that was tops on our list. So it was serendipitous. Philadelphia Orchestra was on board. Again, just putting ourselves now out in front of symphony orchestras. We were starting to tour a lot. Um, I had to take a year off from the Philly Orchestra because of all the gigs we were getting. One of which was the New Year's Eve gig here in Indianapolis with the orchestra in 2006. No yeah. And we rolled into town and to be honest, we have been touring and hitting so many great cities. I didn't know anything about Indianapolis or Indiana and I didn't know what to expect um, quality wise and orchestra wise. And gosh, we got in front of that orchestra and they sounded, they sounded fantastic. And um, at break, one of the fiddle players said, you know, we have a concertmaster opening and don't you play in the Philadelphia Orchestra? And I was like, yeah, but. I wasn't looking for that job. Um, so, yeah, Time for Three was a huge platform. And I think that the Indianapolis Symphony hiring me, part of it was the relationship with a group like that and having their concertmaster out touring, taking the name, because the orchestra here had stopped touring. I think the last tour was 97. So really, they were relying on its music directors and individual players to carry the name and the torch outside of Indianapolis. So that was a huge opportunity, I think, for both sides. And um, we built, you know, we built a nice thing here over the 10 years, 11 years that I was concertmaster and eight years, the time for three and I were together in residence with the orchestra. Um, Annual giving was, was way, way up. Um, By the time, you know, when I first got to the symphony and then by the time time for three was peaking and happy hour was cruising and doing, you know, 10 week residency weeks of outreach uh, performances in virtually every church that would have the ISO and us play. And um, we we were everywhere. We played in the malls. We played in like, I think we played in like, not Saks Fifth Avenue, but a, you know, department store, like a Macy's or something. Right. We, we were doing, we were just, we were, we were spreading the word um, of classical music and just music in general happening at the Hilbert Circle Theater. So yeah. we, had, we had things coming along. And this city, more than, than any city, relies on community engagement through its musicians. You're seeing that now with how many, through COVID 19, you're seeing how many players are just playing out in their street corners in their neighborhoods now. And people are showing up. And the community, I think, makes note of that and hopefully will continue supporting that that ensemble. So,
0: Yeah, that's interesting perspective. Having come from Philadelphia, which is such a uh, heavily urban uh, community, right? I mean, Indianapolis is really, uh, you know, they call it the donut counties where everybody just kind of, they go to work in downtown Indy and then they all, you know, spread back out to the surrounding areas, the suburbs. Right. Um yeah, it I had never really thought of it that way, but uh it's kinda nice to think of it that way, that that their community aspect is really strong. So yeah, how fortuitous was that lightning strike in Philadelphia? And and who planned that? Was that you or Renan that uh that threw the breaker on that, right? <laughs> to be honest, to be
1: honest, Larry, like I had just moved out of my apartment that day into a new apartment. My hands were pretty raw just from carrying stuff. I was in the back of the second violins for Beethoven 9. It was the end of the man center run. We were going to Saratoga for three weeks. And the last thing on my mind, to be honest, was like getting out in front of 5,000 people and playing. And it was Renan that like was over near management hearing what the plan was and hearing our band's name come up. And then he was just sort of there smiling. And he was just <laughs> so ready and wanting to do it. He wanted the gig, man. And he came up to me and he, he'll tell you that like, literally he's like, we're gonna go play in 10 minutes. And he like, I turned white as a ghost. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, oh man, really? Are you serious? Oh, And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna warm up. We're gonna do this, you know, hell or high water all my colleagues in the Philly orchestra are going to be sitting on stage, which is
0: what they were doing. They just sat behind us. Oh my gosh. Know. They didn't even clear the stage for that.
1: No, no, they wouldn't <laughs> be out there and watch this like, circus act. Yeah. So it was, I mean, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget, it. but it did, you know, it proved on so many levels that, you know, different styles of music are acceptable in a venue like that. And for an audience that was coming to hear I mean, let's face it. Beethoven Nine is like classical music's biggest pop rock tune. I mean, I I, I can't imagine a bigger piece for a classical concert, you know, being right. more popular. So, right. Um, certainly, that audience may not have been filled with consistent concert goers, which was probably serendipitous and very fortunate for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, people were kind of. It was dark out there, but you could see people like, like, you know, their arms, their hands up like this, standing up. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was, it was really. It was just fiddle and bass, man. I mean, but we, we
0: pulled it off, and it certainly opened up virtually so many doors for us. Well, but that wasn't even really the beginning for you for that kind of music. And even before we go there, you know, uh, groups like Nickel Creek, mm-hmm. the taking bluegrass. You know, and of course, they are kind of the epitome of new grass, as they call it, right? But it's that energy, that that little bit of a twist to something, uh, great performance, great musicians. It's just like you guys. You took uh, bluegrass feel and sound and turned it into something really cool, right? So, I mean, even if you didn't have your Bill Monroe fans in the audience, you've got people who appreciate good music played well i i think so and we had an ear
1: for a lot of stuff like nick had a a very uh, and still does have has a great ear for stefan Grappelli and his style of jazz Uh, and nick nick without really being a a a theory scientist in any way shape or form and he, he literally just um relies on his just raw talent but he just picks up so naturally sound and, you know, credit that to his education. He grew up in the Waldorf uh, school programs, which instead of, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but instead of having a textbook given to you, the teacher teaches you the information. You create your textbook based on the information. You draw the picture, like in science class, you draw the pictures of the biology class and, the, you know, the different things you're discovering. And, and you write about it. So, and then at the end of the year, you have a textbook on that on that subject that you created, and it's yours. So, he was always such a creative guy in that way, and disciplined. You know, Suzuki trained, um, and and we all were disciplined as players. Obviously, we were a Curtis, so we had, we had all proven at least some level of ability to to right. manage around these instruments. Um, but yeah. Uh, elements of sound in our ear. Renan was such a force because he did spend the time as a youngster. He fell in love with music through jazz and he brought a foundation of, of um, holding down the fort, so to speak, uh, harmonically for us. And always basically validating us in the improv world when needed. Like, you know, Nick and I would kind of be like deers in the headlights if we were, you know, I'll never forget the we played with Branford Marsalis for a fundraiser in Philly and, you know, we're walking him through the orange blossom special and telling him where he's going to solo. And I'm like, I said something to the effect of, yeah, just take it's E major, just, and it's, it's just that. And just take a free open solo. And, and Branford said, I don't do free. Give me direction. Like we're, <laughs> and we're jumped in and, and, you know, boom, boom, boom. And Bran was, he became like one of our closest allies to be honest after that. Cool. Um, so um, yeah, that group was a wonderful vehicle. Um, for many years, I got the job in the Indy Symphony mainly because of that trio and and my resume from orchestral experience. I had enough um, that they didn't feel uncomfortable hiring somebody. And I, I always felt that it was a really good relationship. I left the trio to, to work with the orchestra a couple more years. and And then, you know, the orchestra took a... And, and as you'll notice, as you're hearing in the news, I mean, not just because of COVID, but the orchestra is in a very, very big transitional period. Um, yeah, not a good one right now. It's not. They, they reset their goals of annual giving much lower than where we we had brought it um, with the team with Gary Ginsling and Holly Johnson and Time for Three and Christoph Bansky And, you know... James Johnson came in and, uh, you know, they reset it. I don't know if it's because Mm -hmm. the community didn't feel like they had the funds to continue the level of giving that they were raising every year. Um, And it is a pay-as-you-go orchestra. Um, So there wasn't much work, uh, money being poured into the endowment, which when we built this this team, the idea was raise money and, and put some of that into the endowment. Um, but we were paying the bills, so to speak. We, i am not me, but the institution no, I, I get, was paying the bills.
0: You know, but you look at uh, short-sightedness there, and then something like this comes along. It's like, it, and it's not just the ISO management, and not to get into to all this stuff, but uh, you see a lot of chickens are coming home to roost right now because of, and, and so many different arts organizations, not just orchestras, but it's lack of planning, lack of, of real foresight on that but
1: it is and then there are a few orchestras that seemingly have have a plan and, and have things in their coffers surprisingly the philadelphia orchestra the orchestra that filed bankruptcy in 2012 is the orchestra that's like been able to pay their players through this entire thing and keep virtual concerts now going um unbelievable yeah. having yeah. been there knowing the financial struggles that existed in and when I left that orchestra and just seeing that, that like now they're, they're kind of they're doing stuff during such a horrible yeah. time for all of us.
0: Yeah. Well, and kudos to not just the, the management, but uh, creativity and suggestion of musicians of these groups to say, look, here's what we can do. And I think if management would include, you know, they, I think they sometimes look at musicians as just the hired help. Like we have nothing to contribute beyond the musical aspect, but it's like, you've got entrepreneurs, small business owners, big business owners. I mean, really smart people in your orchestra. It might be nice to tap them for ideas on, on how to get through something like this. Orchestras are filled with
1: hustlers. People that before they had this, this nice job had to hustle. And mm-hmm. we've all had to do it at different points in our career freelancing create stuff carve things out for yourself um it's it's interesting because it's like as you do that your colleagues you know the more you put focus on yourself the more the more back backlash you get so it's like there's a fine line of self promotion and pushing oneself uh without alienating yourself from your colleagues so yeah and of course being in an orchestra you know you're all equals so right
0: um let's let's back up to curtis and you know you said you were there studying classical music and learning how to play perfectly and um which you know that used to be my goal and now i've i've adopted this thing is just to go out and play with excellence you know and if you're not that you're going to be sloppy but you know you're you're all about creating music um i I appreciated that you said that but i think that's kind of where you're headed with that is you, you went there for one thing, but you came away with something completely different.
1: Well, I, I, you know, Curtis is a place to hone your skills and to develop your career. And they, depending on what avenue you want to go, it is an incredibly, um, um, rich school to attend. And, and you, you have a lot of support. I mean, you know, it, when you're, at your freshman orientation, you know, they explained to you that each one of you are, are individually important to this institution. And that's why we brought you here, because you have individual talents that we want, we want to nurture. And that was always, so you were always placed in this place of like, you're, you, you know, when Harry gets to, before he goes to Hogwarts and he's discovering you're a wizard, Harry. You know, it's that kind of treatment that we're like wizard musicians and we're treated mm-hmm. in that way by donors. And and so, and then there's a high expectation inside that school. So when you sit down in an orchestra, you know, we're all there to make music and play and commit to this almost religious experience of dev- mm-hmm. devoting ourselves to every marking the composer has and giving our 110% energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was really the, the crux in the, the learning experience at Curtis. 50% of learning there is just osmosis of being around all those great players um, and the energy and how they all, we all just feed off of each other when you're in an ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, the videos that I've seen in today's COVID world of orchestras getting back at it, there is like a renewed energy and movement to the playing that's going on and maybe less focus of those stupid, intricate details that really only matter to the individual and under the ear, but out there, communicating is becoming much more important Mm. than those, you know, again, just, I, I, I always found, and myself included, falling into that rabbit hole of getting too focused on little things and little details rather than the overarching effect of the performance. Um, you can work on those things in the practice room and the kinks and whatnot, but when it's time to go, it's
0: time to go. Um, so, so as a concert master, you're kind of expected to do that though, right? I mean, you've got to be at the absolute top of your game, every rehearsal, every performance, right? I,
1: Yes. I mean, some, some concert masters as, as time moves on, maybe they don't necessarily expect that, Level from themselves, or they 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 sort of settle into a comfortable, mature way. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, the great ones that I always witnessed seem to have an energy that the orchestra could could gather around, an energy and and a level of capability, you know, accuracy, intelligent approach, um, also doing what the conductor is doing, and then able mm-hmm. to disseminate that so mm-hmm. yeah i mean i've sat in the back and i sat in the front it's a different alertness it's it's a whole different alertness um mm-hmm. that that those jobs require um mm-hmm. but yeah I've, i always viewed the concert master gig as as um one that you know look when things go go awry everybody looks to that chair so yeah but those are those you're right in an orchestra those those three spots are, are the hot seats, man. They're in charge of, in charge of you know. Well, yeah. Those areas. So, yeah. yeah. Or
0: responsible for. Sure. Uh, so even before you get to Curtis, I mean, you've got a multitude of styles under your fingers, literally, right? I mean, it, Time for Three was not the first time you had explored anything other than orchestral music, right? Right.
1: Yeah. My family, my dad had us gigging 50 to 60 times a year. We were freelance musicians growing up. We were a family of Troubadour players and we the had Depew brothers, right? It's called that now, but at the time it was the Depew family musicians. Oh, and okay. the slogan, the slogan was music for every occasion. And so we played weddings, funerals, receptions, dinner parties, entertainment for corporate events, um, you name it, we did it. We opened for Marie Osmond. We opened for The Letterman. Like we were doing anything and everything. We were gigging, and my dad just wanted a platform for us to play, have an opportunity to perform the music we were studying, and also perform the music that um, he thought people wanted to hear. Um, and some of that was the, were the fiddle tunes that we were learning for fiddle contests in the summertime. So, bluegrass was the first. Was the first avenue of like bringing in different styles. So like our program at first as a family was a lot of bluegrass tunes and then one brother would play a movement of Bach and then it sort of went from the straw hats and the red vests to a little more Bach and more arrangements of Gornowaisen and you know as the brothers got better and learning their instruments we were able to up the ante so to speak and push the envelope and, and you saw that from the second oldest brother, Alex, especially, he was bringing home albums, Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones. He was bringing in stuff that dad didn't know about. And certainly it wasn't classical. So it was maybe not, it was frowned upon, (laughs) Um, but the innovation and the the creativeness was undeniable. And Alex ran with that stuff and he introduced all of us to it. So yeah, Um, and each, brother had it had a different focus growing up alex in that improv world my brother jason was absolutely focused on concerto and solo work he was playing tchaikovsky concerto with the columbus every orchestra in ohio virtually other than the cleveland orchestra had and cincinnati symphony like the big orchestras didn't have them but every other orchestra he keep springfield ohio columbus symphony uh, youngstown akron the Cleveland Philharmonic. He played Tchaikovsky concerto, Paganini concerto, and you know I'm I'm there just sort of taking all of this in as an audience member, but also at home practicing. So um, observing these young men become like proficient at this instrument, and as my as I'm also learning it. So
0: yeah, are you are you the youngest of the brothers?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I had yes. lessons five dollars an hour. My dad paid them and so they they beat they they did you know they abused me for the, that money um <laughs> except, except for jason but alex and wallace were old enough that they were like five bucks a couple couple hours in the week
0: and i've got my my weekend money so right right and so uh you mentioned uh who who had gone through suzuki that wasn't your brothers that was nick you were talking about right nick nick well nick's grandfather brought them he's
1: Virtually the single person responsible for bringing the method from Japan t- to America. Seriously, yeah. Um, back in the late fifties, early sixties, like a sixty minutes piece. Well, sixty minutes didn't exist, but there was a piece on the news that showed seven hundred and fifty little Japanese children playing Bach Double in an airplane hangar. And his grandfather was like, "I need to figure out what that is," and so he went there, met Suzuki worked with him studied the method brought it back and then literally traveled the country pioneering it in every major city town university coaching and training suzuki and spreading the word and there were a couple other pioneers that jumped on board right away with him but that was and in bowling green ohio there was a suzuki trained teacher named grace baker that i started with my oldest brother started with Um, and her Suzuki program didn't adhere to the Suzuki program proper, and to be honest, there weren't enough bodies students in Bowling Green interested in playing violin at that time. It was, I mean, it, it wasn't the most popular thing to be doing, especially when you get to junior high it was playing a string instrument in Bowling Green, Ohio. So well, is
0: it cow tipping? Was that the pastime out there? is that? <laughs> man, you know not to downgrade cow tipping. I, I'm I've just never done. I'm just it, kidding. But- yeah, but they get
1: it here in Indiana too, so I mean, yeah,
0: right, right. So, you know, my wife, things.
1: yeah,
0: my wife uh went through the Suzuki program, okay. and uh, now my our youngest, he's 10, he's he's uh, on the Bakarini Minuet, last one in book two, and I take him to lessons and I, I do group lessons and with him, and man, I'm I'm learning tons about this, and I was supposed to get this this past June, but got postponed till next June, but there's Suzuki trumpet now. So sure. I'm going to become a Suzuki certified trumpet teacher next year, as long as, you know, nothing gets canceled again. But right. uh, man, what a, what a, I think a beautiful thing, just training the ear training, you know, bef- the sound before sight, which I, I really believe is key. It's such a huge thing. It, it's enormous. I think it's enormous.
1: I, I, it, it, Again, going back to, you know, the, the idea of educating children. I went to Montessori Mm -hmm. early on when I was three, I was the only brother to do this, but I think that like that was a huge impact of allowing me the space to be creative and to trust in it. And to really like, you know, one of the things that I found at Montessori was that they would give you some, some toys and instead of telling you what to do with it, they would observe you and see what your strengths and weaknesses were and interests. So that kind of um, development early, I think, really helped um, just to free me to, to trust
0: myself and to be myself. You know, I've seen that. Um, our boys, up until this year, we just transferred them into uh, the public schools, but they've been in Montessori their entire time. Right. On. <laughs> and, and I, am so I'm, as you're telling me this, I'm like, man, I've been there. I've watched it. And yeah. you know, one of, one of my biggest things is like once they're still, they're doing virtual right now, but when they get into a classroom, are they going to know how to sit in a desk in a row? <laughs> you know, cause that's not the Montessori way. Right. It's, it's the freedom, and the creativity yeah. and the encouragement, you know, that individual attention I think is is huge there too. Just like Suzuki, I think. Yes. And it is difficult
1: to go from that to be sitting behind a desk and just sort of having somebody like open your brain and start stuffing information in there <laughs> and then close it, you know. so
0: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I saw, um, I guess, what had become the Pew Brothers Band. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was like 2012 Midwest Arts Midwest Showcase. And uh, I had a group that was showcasing. We we're up in Grand Rapids. And the group going right before us was – your brother where there were your brothers and I'm like uh, oh my gosh I mean they were they were killing it right yeah. you know I mean uh, you've seen those things right the showcases have you been part of those where you know presenters come and go they're shopping to see who they're going to invite for the, the season well time for time for three did all of those all oh. over the country and then
1: my brothers started doing them but I was so busy with orchestra and yeah. time for three that I wasn't part of their run but yeah they they showed up and and did some of those for sure yeah,
0: but but time for 3 did that so uh, yeah. you did apap and and arts midwest and all those 15, 15 minute show right Stir yeah and stuff. it cost a fortune right <laughs> 20
1: like 2500 bucks or something just to have a spark our manager subsidized because he had several acts and he bought a you know he had a booth so yeah. But, yeah, that, that, that whole thing's not cheap. On the other side, if you book a, a string of gigs, I mean, right. our, our APAP and we did live on stage. Oh, yeah, we out of Gotham Nashville, Orchestra. right? Yeah, community concert series. We did 60 of those. And wow. then we added to that another 60 or 70 we had 70 other gigs with orchestra and performing arts centers we had 130 gigs over nine months um (laughs) period of uh, september 2006
0: through june of 2007 when i was hired in Indy. yeah it was crazy here's here's a a, an interesting question uh there's a difference between a fiddle and a violin right you know it's the cut of the bridge and uh isn't it i mean you know fiddle players usually well and the number of teeth you have right isn't that uh, i am going to definitely edit that out we're that is never going to make it the difference between a fiddle and a violin is that a violin has strings and a fiddle has strings a, you can edit that one out no yeah. man that's staying in in fact that's going to be the the teaser that's going to open up the Uh, open up the interview (laughs) you know to be honest there i mean i've never
1: found a huge difference in the setup other than generally speaking the acoustic nature of the classical player is much they're much more reliant on the acoustic element of their instrument um you know although bluegrass players and, and what they do now is the level of what they do is is gone up too i mean the cross-pollination that's been going on in the last 20 years of these styles i mean chris tealy the mandolin player is just oh, right. sort of become the the sort of bridge
0: and and bringer of all together the goat is it goat rodeo uh, what's the name of that uh he and yo-yo ma there's a goat rodeo sessions that's it that's it yeah goat rodeo yeah. sessions right yo-yo edgar
1: um stewart duncan and um, Chris Teely, yeah. yeah. And actually, I just did a gig two weeks ago. The keyboard player had somebody lift one of their tunes and write out parts. The man, All the parts uh, for one of their tunes called Atta Boy. And uh, we did it. I mean, we didn't have mandolin, so it's two fiddles. We put the um, cello part, yo-yo's part, on flugelhorn for Conrad to play. Oh, nice. And... keyboard just sort of covered everybody's part drum our drummer just added a little thing it's a total acoustic piece and the bass player renan was on the gig too um he he played edgar's part that was written out so um don't don't necessarily want to tell them that we did that but yeah and those sessions are awesome yeah what those guys do yeah
0: um i I will say i've i've not been a fan. Well, I stopped listening, and I don't even think they call it Prairie Home Companion anymore. But you know, once he took over for, uh, well, I forgot it. Already forgot his name. Uh, um, yeah. Good, uh, good. Gunther, good. I don't feel Gunther so bad. Shuler. Gunther
1: Schuller. Gunther, Shuler.
0: No, Gunther No, no, no. The, the the guy that ran uh, Prairie Home Companion. Garrison Keillor. Garrison Keillor. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Boy, yeah. Isn't, it's amazing somebody
1: that was so in our musical lives. He's gone for three or four years and you can
0: hardly like, right. Right. It's a, it's a, what have you done for me lately business? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was just editing another interview earlier today and uh, Trent Austin, he's a trumpet player. And he said, uh, well, you know, the life of a musician, right? It's like, who is Zach DePew? Right. There's one. Then I want to hire Zach DePew, and then I want a younger Zach And then who is Zach, right? It's like, i I never thought about it that way, but it's like, you you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, Steve Martin just popped into my head, right? You know, steep Canyon Rangers and uh, what he's been, I mean, the guy is ridiculously talented in so many ways, but that he can come out (laughs) and do this stuff on banjo and and whatnot. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe you guys have a future uh, working together. He's had a nice collaboration with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And my brother oh, no Jason, kidding.
1: they have a video. If you go dig into the Philly Orchestra's Facebook and go in their videos, one of, their, one of the videos they've released during COVID was a, was a Steve Martin tune called Office Supplies. And it's just a three and a half, four minute bluegrass tune. But um, my brother uh, was part of writing out the chart for it, getting it to the band. The tuba player of the orchestra orchestrated it. And so there's, like, this jam session. My brother's playing mandolin on it in addition to fiddle. Um, they put a really cool video. Check it out. It's, it's a lot yeah. of fun. And it's, it's yeah. really cool to see the, the great Philadelphia Orchestra, like, having, having a piece like that as one of their videos during COVID. It was, it was a neat yeah. thing. It's a really cool yeah. video. Well,
0: <clears throat> and thinking, too, the creativity. Jeff Kernow uh, in that group, you know, did, uh, graphic design. He did my logo for me. You know, I'm very. He? Yeah. Right, right back there. You know, he, he designed that for me and uh, you know, it's uh, well, Bilger, David Bilger, you know, I've, I gotten to know him a little bit. It's like, there's a lot of talented, obviously you know, more than just the brass section, but. Um, oh gosh. But that brass section, Neitzan, Carol
1: Yonch, uh you know, the thing about the Philly orchestra that always amazed me is that yes, the principals are great, but the number two player is as good, if not better in many regards to certain <laughs> repertoire and they they discuss it with like Matt mm-hmm. Vaughn is an unbelievable trombone player. Um, uh, Blair Bollinger. I mean, right. Uh, Kurnow, you know,
0: Bilger. Stacked. Right. right. <laughs> and see, these are names, uh, you know, the others, uh, Carol Carol Jantz or Yontz, yeah, um which- you know, that's that's a name that's on my list because Making waves, right, and for a long time. Yes, um, I, I want to talk making. just a little bit. Uh, of course, you've done so much orchestral work and uh, chamber music, but now with the Indianapolis Quartet, uh, what what is the real focus of that group? I know you're there to also coach students, but what's the what's the mission of that group?
1: You know, when we saw when we
0: we set out to do
1: this quartet, it was to bring. A highest level of great classical repertoire to central Indiana and then carry the Indianapolis name out nationally and internationally. Um, it, it really was to be a vehicle to carry the city's name um, out. It still is. Um, and, you know, we did a, a Carnegie debut at Weill Recital Hall. Um, you know, we, we've been doing Performances and whatnot, and getting our name out, and getting reviewed, and 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 those things. Um, mainly because there's there's really no other classical entity leaving the city to tour and carry the Indianapolis banner, so to speak. Um, and and again, I think that that Raymond Leppard did such a beautiful job creating those opportunities for the orchestra, and so. You know, we just figured, uh, let's do this on a smaller level and, and try to do that. So that, that's been the inception. We're in, like, I think year four of this mm-hmm. of this project. Um, you know, the passing of Crystal DeHaan certainly hurts. Um, she, her foundation is the quartet's biggest sole supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see how the foundation decides to roll forward. Um, but I think that we have something important. Um, it's really nice uh, and meaningful to have influence um, there at UND for the students when they need us uh, to tap into us. I know Michael teaches quite a bit adjunct, um, as does Austin Huntington. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Second Violence, you want to on faculty. So and anytime she needs me, I'm, I'm always happy to come and support, uh, lend support to whatever she needs there. So mm-hmm. th- that's really been the the sort of mission statement, that's a long mission statement, but to to really bring great classical music to central Indiana and carry it nationally and internationally with the Indianapolis banner.
0: You have uh, ideas about repertoire for for future things? Is it standard rep? Are you looking to commission anything or are you gonna expand some time for three pieces into that? that We we could do that
1: for sure. Although I, you know, the quartet has commissioned uh, one quartet by Robert Patterson out in New York. And that's his third quartet. And we're recording all three of his quartets. Um, We're delving into bringing, uh, especially this coming fall recital, um, you know, it's only a two hour program, but we're definitely taking responsibility and bringing people of minority uh, music uh, uh, composers of a minority background to this program, Montgomery is is the composer that we're bringing to this specific program, um, and hopefully more, um, as we discover. Uh, certainly, you know, there's so much great repertoire by the great composers, and we all want to play that because it's what we've studied in school, and it's what's endured the test of time, so to speak. Um, so that said discovering and lending support as much as possible in this new social environment that we are living in and trying to lend ourselves to being a, a at least responsible performance ensemble in, in terms of bringing, bringing light to a lot of um, music that otherwise remains in the coffers. And my dad's a composer. He's 88 years old. His stuff, you know, he's retired from BGSU. he, you know, I come home for Christmas and, you know, he'll say, I had one performance of my music this year and I know the stacks of music that he's created. And it's just kind of unbelievable, probably the thousands of composers that have created music that sits on shelves. So I I get it. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll continue to find some cool stuff to bring, bring along for the ride yeah Um, yeah but we've been in this Beethoven explorer exploration um, all of his quartets and also just the the transition of his music if you followed those quartets the 18s just in such a classical form the middle quartets experimental and moving towards this romantic you get to the late quartets and it's just total experimentation and the harmonies in there I mean it's like there's some wacky stuff but it's unbelievable, but he really yeah. so it, it is it is a musical world that I wanted to jump into when I left time for three. I wanted to get through the Beethovens and do that so we've been yeah. we've been chipping chipping on those.
0: Um, uh, Sergei and Nekoyakov, trumpet player, uh, can play all the trumpet rep, so of course, next thing he does is delves into the string rep, which is great. you know it's a uh, and even on his four valve flugelhorn, he does Col Nidre, you know, the, the brook. And I mean, it's just, yeah. but what it's really done is is taken me out of the trumpet world and made me realize just how much great music there is out there. It, non-trumpet, you know, it's like, man, it's, the strings. Well, you have such a history, a much a richer history of, of string rep uh, than we do. Um, and it's just nice to get to know those pieces. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm enjoying getting to know, uh, well, um, variations on a Rococo theme is one of my favorite things to listen to. Oh, it's cello, right? But it's still one of my hmm. favorite things to listen to right now. But, um, so, man, Zach, this is this has been kind of fun. Huh. I, I wish I had pushed record. I'm sorry I forgot to do that, but um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do it all over again. Yeah, right, right. Go. Well, we had to do that right at the beginning, at least for a for a couple of minutes. But um, yeah, I appreciate your time this afternoon. This is uh, I'm glad we could make this work out. And uh, um, I always like getting to know people a little bit better than just saying hey, you know, <laughs> in passing. But it's my it's my pleasure, man. Have you have you? I don't know if you want to record this, but have you lost weight? You look like
1: you're
0: yeah. you look like you're shedding it. Yeah. Um, let's see since. Oh, uh about 85 down 85 what's the secret man um uh medically supervised diet how about that wow okay yeah and exercise good for you
1: good for so, you man
0: um i um i'm let's see how much further uh, about the same i want to lose about the same yet wow so i want to get back down to uh I wanted to get to my original weight, but I don't think seven pounds nine ounces is quite uh, <laughs> is quite possible. Oh so, man! But yeah, thanks. Good I, I you. appreciate you saying that. Yeah, thank you. Congrats, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, you you don't see people for a long time, right? And like this, I've seen each other since maybe a, an airborne session. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually going down this week. I have a gig this week. I'm so excited uh, going down to Owensboro. You know, I haven't seen my Owensboro Symphony people since it was a January concert. Right. Wow. So, and I am I know, you know, I know they're going to say, holy cow, you know, what's, what's happened, but uh, I'm yeah. sure it's, I mean, shocking to for some. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me too, you know, it's like, yeah, man. I don't have clothes that fit anymore, which is, it's a nice problem to have, you know. So yeah. I'm working on it, working on it, but, uh, yeah, feeling healthy, you know, enjoying, uh, being able to ride bikes with my, my family and, and walk and everything, you know, so trying to stick around. I got a granddaughter too. You know, I mean, I've got to, I got to stay healthy for, for everybody. So You have people to live for. That's, that's absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So, well, um, yeah, thank you. I, I, I appreciate the time. And I look forward to the next time, you know, if it's at UND or the studio or wherever, I look forward to the next time we, uh, we get to play together, whatever that is. Likewise, man. Likewise. Yeah. So stay healthy. And uh, I'll let you know when, when all this is ready to go. Cool. Yeah, take oh, care. And, and thanks for this. You bet. Thanks for having me on. I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining me today for my interview. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, you can visit patreon.com slash studio By becoming a supporter, you can have access to content that is exclusively available to my Patreon patrons, which would include excerpts from interviews. I'd also like to remind you to visit Apple podcast and leave a star rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Thanks again for being here and listening. And I hope you come back for another interview next time around.